Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. Today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. My name is John Fenicos. I am a pharmacist, and I serve as the Chief of Pharmacy at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. I will be your host today. With me today is Dr. Arthur Allen. Dr. Allen is the Anticoagulation Program Manager at the Veterans Administration, VA, Salt Lake City Healthcare System in Salt Lake City, Utah. If I was going to describe what Arthur does, he does the heavy lifting. We see patients here at the hospital for short periods of time. We put these patients on anticoagulation, and then we turn these patients over to folks like Arthur and his group for what could be a lifetime of anticoagulation therapy. Arthur has a long history of practicing in the ambulatory setting while focusing on anticoagulation management. And all of the facilities he has touched are recognized as anticoagulation centers of excellence. And it should be as no surprise that he serves on the board of directors for the Anticoagulation Forum and for the Thrombosis and Hemostasis Societies of North America. So, Arthur, welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and speak about this topic. This episode is sponsored by Janssen or Janssen Pharmaceuticals. This podcast series examines the prevention of venous thromboembolism or VTE in hospitalized acutely ill medical patients at risk for thromboembolic complications. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and it does not provide continuing education credit. There will be additional podcasts on this topic, and they will be available. So, Arthur, thanks for joining me today. And let's get started. Let's have at it. And let's talk a little bit about anticoagulation thromboprophylaxis. All right, let's do it. We've got a little bit of time here to chat, so let's have at it. Let me ask you, for our audience that may not have practiced the outpatient or ambulatory side in anticoagulation, tell me what happens for you as a routine practitioner. Sure. Yeah, that's actually an interesting question because it's changed a lot. And I think really the anticoagulation service of the present and future is a different animal than it was historically. As I'm sure you know, historically, anticoagulation services were set up to manage warfarin, often nursing-led historically, although clinical pharmacy has really taken over that space for a lot of facilities, especially within the VA. And they were taken over to ensure safety, the safe, effective use of this kind of narrow therapeutic window of medication. The focus had historically been dealing with the drug interactions, keeping the INRs therapeutic, and so on. But as the field has progressed and become more nuanced and complicated, really, I feel that the value from the anticoagulation individual practitioners and service should be from their expertise, because at many sites, there is no high-level expert in the field, whether we're talking physician or otherwise. And so more and more, and especially with more more medications that have come on board, like the DOACs to manage, the focus of the management piece has become a bit simpler. But the need for experts in the field and for folks to step in and make the difficult calls and have the difficult conversations has really shifted. So the role in my service, for example, we are a consult-heavy service. We do a lot of consults to help answer difficult questions. We certainly do the management of the remaining 9 to 10% of our population that remain on warfarin. 
and we oversee safe and effective use of DOACs as efficiently as we can, and in our case, utilizing a population health approach that was developed in the VA system. So that's an excellent segue into my next question, because we have started to see this paradigm shift. Same thing. We were focused primarily on warfarin, and I think at our peak had close to 7,000 patients. Now we're slightly under 3,000, but the rising population is actually those on DOACs. What should we be doing with those DOAC patients now? I think that when DOACs hit the market, the first one being made available around late 2010, when they hit the market, there were two extremes. There were those who took the, it ain't warfarin, it ain't my problem approach. And there were those that more in the VA system, what we saw is these are anticoagulants. And so I joke, we waited 50 years to get a drug that wasn't warfarin. And when we got it, we tried to turn it into warfarin with entirely too much oversight, requirements for lab testing that was not justified, crying that we couldn't at the time reverse them, crying that we couldn't monitor them with routine lab work. And so there were these two extremes where site either hovered like a mother hen over the drugs or took a hands-off approach. What I feel is the best middle-of-the-road approach is ensuring safe and effective use, but being sensitive to the fact that we have very little data that suggests that if we spin our wheels really doing a lot of work and asking a lot of questions and monitoring a lot of labs, we have little data to suggest that we actually impact outcomes by doing that. And so what you have to work smarter, not harder. So in our case, as I mentioned, we utilize a population health approach that basically monitors in the background every patient in the VA prescribed DOACs but hands us a list of patients that may have something clinically indicated that we need to look at. That's a tool that we developed over a few years. It's now the standard of care in the VA system, a very, very smart way and efficient way to get at potential clinical issues with DOAX. Incredibly helpful. I think for us, as we start to navigate more and more patients coming on board, a lot of activities surround those problem patients those problem patients that require surgical intervention, starting and stopping, restarting therapies that I think represent a challenge. So that leads me into our topic surrounding medically ill patients. So I date myself. In the 1980s, when we first started, we actually didn't even recognize thromboprophylaxis in medical patients. We went through a period with trials with low molecular weight heparins and, and fondaparinox, and I think fell in love with giving prophylaxis to everybody and blanketly suggesting that if you set foot in the door of a hospital, that you needed an anticoagulant to prevent deep vein thrombosis of pulmonary embolism. And then I think have gone through a yet another period of rethinking where things are at in terms of who needs to get anticoagulant therapy as a prophylaxis strategy, and then the horizon. So let me ask, what's happening in Salt Lake City in the VA system surrounding hospitalized patients' prophylaxis? Let's focus on that for a second. Maybe give us a little pulse check, if you will. Sure. So you're exactly right. The pendulum swung to extremes with VTE prophylaxis, much like it did with opioid use, if you think about it. We had these feast or famine periods of time. And what we've realized with VTE prophylaxis is in-hospital prophylaxis is that it is definitely something that should be considered and is a thing, but it's not necessarily for everybody. And we have to weigh, just like anything in medicine, risk and benefit. So certainly at our facility, we order sets in place that allow folks to walk through and consider VTE prophylaxis, considering guideline-based approaches to in-hospital prophylaxis. But, you know, at the end of the day, VTE risk, much like it doesn't exactly just start by crossing the threshold into the hospital, it doesn't necessarily go away by crossing the threshold out of the hospital, as you know, and that's why we're here today. We have been challenged, Arthur. We participated in 
the trials with the DOAX and medically ill prophylaxis. So we were a center for ADOPT, the ADOPT trial that used Pixaban and in the hospital and extended it out post-discharge. We had the Magellan trial that looked at Rivaroxaban, starting in the hospital and extending, and then Mariner that basically took patients to discharge and gave them Rivaroxaban. And then we were involved in Apex with the now unavailable drug, Betrixaban, out the basically 42 days of therapy. So we were engaged in all of these trials and actively looking at patients with risk factors at the time of discharge. Since you're in this transitional role, can you tell us what's happening at the VA system? This gets tough, and I think that it's not unique to the VA that we don't exactly know with extended VTE prophylaxis. We know that we have a risk. We know that that risk of VTE doesn't end necessarily because of patients' discharge, and especially in this day and age of short hospital stays and sending patients to home and to facilities. But you went through a list of VTE trials, many of those focusing on extended VTE prophylaxis out of the hospital. And really, the trick is, what's the juice for the squeeze, right? I mean, we know in general that if we keep VTE prophylaxis on, we can reduce the incidence of VTE in patients who leave the hospital. But we also know that that comes at a cost of bleeding. And what's the sweet spot? And because of this payoff, this has not become standard of care, not only at our facility or any VA facility, but really any facility, I think. If you look across the data, what you'll find is to really try to get at this problem of who should we prophylax in an extended fashion, the best data comes from Alex Baropoulos' sub-study of Magellan, where they looked at, okay, so if what's good for the goose is not necessarily good for the gander, how do we select who should receive therapy? And they use some exclusionary criteria to identify patients at high risk of major bleeding and fatal bleeding. And in that study, they were able to find a benefit in certain patients where the number needed to treat became more reasonable for the number needed to harm. Because prior to that, really the number needed to harm and number needed to treat didn't make sense for routine adoption. You mentioned transitions of care. I think looking at the patient upon discharge and where they're going and what they're looking like when they leave should play into this. So if they're going to a facility for a rehab stay, for example, that patient looks a lot more like an inpatient than an outpatient, let's be honest. So maybe it makes more sense in those settings than it does for someone going home who skips on the way out the door and (laughs) is not necessarily still quite debilitated. So finding the right mix is definitely the issue. But at the end of the day, we as clinicians need to know that it's a thing and we need to at least know to ask the question. Those are fascinating points. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think in Magellan, the number needed to treat was around 400 And the apex, I think we got it down to 63, being much, much more selective in the higher risk populations that we enrolled. But I'll tell you, a lot of the effort comes with that in trying to find the exact patient. I think your strategy of somehow for the pharmacists that are involved, and we've got a whole host of folks now trying to smooth out these transitions of care, but somewhere in the checklist or in the forefront of the central lobe making the assessment of VTE risk, whether it's formal with a risk scoring system. I know there's been a number of systems that have emerged that people are advocating, some with biomarkers like D-dimer and others that add to the complication. But I think, and you might want to correct me, I think this is part of our role as pharmacists, right? Is this not our wheelhouse? Finding the patients that are going to benefit from drug therapy. 
No, I think you're exactly right. If you look at a lot of what has happened in medicine over the last decade, 15 years, and especially with the increasing use of electronic health records, medicine has become a lot more standardized, a lot more science and art, if you will. And clinical pharmacists have kind of been instrumental in helping to build algorithmic thinking, building order sets that match those algorithmic processes that take the actual hard data, incorporate it into checklists. So if you think about VTE prophylaxis, it allows us to look at the guidelines, build order sets that follow those guidelines to decide who should, shouldn't receive therapy. And we tend to want to do that in a lot of places. We do that with antimicrobial stewardship. We do that with patient coming in with chest pain. We have all of these algorithms built and we love to be able to do that. The problem with extended VTE prophylaxis is I just don't think we're there. I think that there's still more art in this. And to your point, I think that it is our role, but I think that we can't expect that we can just put this in an algorithm. We don't yet have enough data. We don't yet have enough harm and benefit and this net clinical benefit data to really draw lines in the sand on this topic of extended VTE prophylaxis. And in addition to the clinical issues, our cost issues and uh, patient compliance issues and all of these things, patients going to facilities, will they be covered for the medication? So there are all of these issues that tie into extended VTE prophylaxis that even if we could fit into an algorithm, which again, I argue we can't yet, that are still in play. So this is a complicated issue. And I think that we have to consider the extend VTE prophylaxis on a case-by-case basis with really deep thought about, yes, the thrombotic risk, but also the bleeding risk associated with it. And is the payoff leading towards net benefit? And most of us, I think, suspected then and probably believe now that it's not just another medical illness. Okay, I'll put it that way. There's something about it. It's not just another medical illness. Having said that, there were some practices early on with very aggressive VTE prophylaxis that was based on anecdotal data from experience from Italy and from China and from when New York got hit very hard and heavy. Folks were doing the best that they could to manage this. And there were a lot of questionable practices that have since been vetted a bit. And I think that we've learned to back off a little bit from our concern but not completely. I would still argue it's not just another medical illness or something special about it. Now, how does it impact me as an outpatient pharmacist or as an outpatient clinician dealing with this? I do think that COVID-19 needs to be considered when there's a consideration of extended VT prophylaxis upon discharge. It's not just a checkbox that you check and you say everybody gets it who had COVID, not necessarily, of course. But where it's really impacted me is, yes, we've seen quite a bit of VTE-associated VTE that then gets treated as an outpatient. And typically, at the end of a three-month period, we do a formal review of our VTE patients to determine how do we feel about their ongoing risk. And typically, for provoked clots, medically ill, surgical, those kinds of things, it's kind of a hard stop. We kind of understand. But really, that depends on how is the patient looking at three months. And I've had it go several different ways. We've had some COVID patients who were quite sick and just rebounded and by three months, they're dancing a jig. And I've had other at three months, patients are still on supplemental oxygen. They're still laid up. They're still sick. The way that it impacts me is at that three-month touch point, how sick does the patient look? There's nothing wrong with making a call to continue another three months, treat to six and reevaluate. Then there's really any suspicion whether it's COVID or anything else, but I've seen this more, I think, with COVID, where at three months, I'm going, boy, we don't know about the extended VTE risk. We suspect there's something fishy with COVID, and this guy is still quite sick. And I'll make the call to continue at least another three months and reevaluate at that point. And what are you using for anticoagulation in those patients? 
So I have no reservations about using any modality that the patient has access to. For us, we use DOAC's first line, of course. No reservations about that at all. Early on, there was some concern. Does heparin have some special antiviral properties for the acute patient in the hospital? There were concerns about should we be using shorter acting agents in case we need to take the patient? Are they going to crash? Are their kidneys going to go? But once a patient is established as they're not going to crash and burn and they're not going to have a procedure, there's no reason in my mind not to use a DOAC, whether we're talking primary prophylaxis for the medically ill or treatment. Yeah, I know we've had a number of societies weigh in on extended prophylaxis, the ACC, ASH, CHEST, ISTH, the NIH, the World Health Organization. And I know ISTH came out and had some recommendations for extending thromboprophylaxis. I think they really were the only group that had a position. And I, to your point, I think this is such a unique disease. And truly, we haven't had even a whole year or we're just coming up on a year of managing it, to your point, with a lot of hysteria early. And now I think there's something like 75 clinical trials. I think that's what Binud Bigdeli reported in Jack a few weeks ago. There are a whole host of trials now that are ongoing, both in treatment and in prophylaxis, that may give us the answers that we need in terms of that transition out of the hospital, and then perhaps for an extended period. Arthur, we're running out of time. So let me ask, if you had some practical advice for the young practitioner as a career in anticoagulation, what would you tell them? I would remind them that whether they know it or not or like it or not, as an anticoagulation provider, they are likely the expert at their facility. Yes, that we have some places like Brigham and Women's that have high-level thrombosis experts. We have the McMasters in Canada. We have some places with high-level benign heme vascular medicine folks, but the majority of folks in practice at hospitals or in the VA system or elsewhere, they're working at a facility that does not necessarily have high level expertise. So it's up to them. And I would encourage them, get your value from your clinical expertise and not from keeping INRs between two and three and keeping DOACs appropriately managed. That's all important stuff. Get your value from the neck up. So let me ask for a plug for the AC Forum. If you're naive to this business, I know they run some training programs. I know you're part of those. Perhaps you can touch on that. Sure. The AC Forum is an incredible organization that developed. We're about to celebrate our 30th anniversary, actually, this month. And it really kind of started out as developing with a focus on warfarin management and supporting those folks and that kind of thing. And has developed really into a world-class organization. If you're not familiar with it, membership is free. They put on CEs and webinars. They have a conference. The next conference is in San Francisco in October, normally in April, but it got pushed because of COVID. They also put on boot camps. There's a boot camp this month uh, and it's virtual. I would encourage you, especially young practitioners, to consider participating in that. And then there's a resource center, the Anticoagulation Centers of Excellence Resource Center has resources developed, vetted by subject matter experts in this field, high-level folks. It's just an incredible organization with incredible people. And I would encourage you to check it out if you're not familiar with it, for sure. All right. So how about for old dogs like me, Arthur, handling medically ill patients? What do I need to look for for those people that are transitioning? And what advice would you give for the pharmacist that's in the trenches every day fighting that battle? I think it's important to know that it's a question that needs to be asked, that societies have not embraced extended VTE prophylaxis for the majority, but you need to be thinking about where the patient's going, what their underlying VTE risk is, what their bleeding risk is to balance against that, and how they look leaving the door. And it should be a question that's asked. It should be something that's considered specifically 
for very high risk VTE patients without exceptional bleeding risk, and especially if they're expected to still be debilitated or immobilized upon leaving the hospital, if they're going to a facility or if we know they're going to be laid up at home. It should be a question that you ask. Courtesy of the Joint Commission of the Surgeon General, we have had so much focus on just ensuring that patients get thromboprophylaxis in the hospital. I know the joint has those as electronic capture reporting requirements. Now, the focus on hospital-acquired conditions that included VTE. So I think for the pharmacist, the takeaway is you need to get down those walls and start thinking beyond the spectrum of the hospital and that transition period, and really where patients are heading and what the situation is that they go to. So I agree with you. I think there's still a role for us here in smoothing all of that out and ensuring we get the right drugs to the right patients. Last question, Arthur. What can we look forward to in the future as far as thromboprophylaxis goes? What can we expect for changes for the pharmacist, the practitioner? What should we be looking out for? Well, I think for the inpatient folks, probably more of a move toward orals and away from injectables, especially as cost goes down the orals. I think that we'll see that. I hope we'll see better guidance on outpatient prophylaxis. We're seeing, again, we're having guidance now about primary prophylaxis in the cancer population, and that would be extended VT prophylaxis often in that population. So that's kind of coming down the pipeline with driven by DOAX trials. And I hope for extended medically ill populations and other surgical populations, I hope to see data that help us better define how we get at net benefit and away from net harm. I think that that's what we'll be seeing, and I hope I'm right. I don't think there's a better role for the pharmacist in taking these clinical trials and translating them into active practices. And I'll always submit to you that there's an opportunity for medication use evaluation, that we have a role in making sure that we are getting the outcomes that we seek. I know it's difficult in the setting of thromboprophylaxis, but I think this is the pharmacist wheelhouse and the point where we can add value. So with that, Arthur, thank you so much for joining me. Always enlightening. I always learn something. It's always, always a pleasure. And to the audience, thank you for joining us at the ASHP Advantage podcast, engaging the experts. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to the ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Once again, thank you so much for joining us. Have a good day. Have a safe day. We look forward to talking with you again. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.